I think we're ready for our first uh, guest tonight. I'm really excited to have Arlen Hamilton, the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital. Uh, we'll get a bit into Arlen's background in a second, but you know, the, the crack team at, at TechTO told me she's obsessed with the TV show General Hospital and has been watching for 30 years. And, you know, that to me is impressive. Arlen, uh, I remember watching it with my, my grandmother growing up. Oh, so is, yeah. are you, are you true uh, General Hospital fan? Oh, big time fan, big time fan. Um, they're like, you know, the sports team, right? They're like my, they're that team that I've, I've counted on for so many years and good times and bad. And so, yeah, I'm a very proud General Hospital stan, as they say. Glad we could start off with that. I'd love to start off um, learning a bit, a bit more about you. Um, you have a fascinating background. You, you, it's like when I started reading about you, the first thing I've read was that you had this Norwegian pop punk band that you really loved and you basically reached out and helped them go on tour. Can you tell me if that, like, is that how you started off your Yeah, I was working that? at a bank. I was 20, I had just turned 21. I was working at a bank, had been, uh, it was very, it was like data entry and boring. And uh, I was too good at it, you know, it was like easy. And so I was listening to music and I came across this song and I thought it was really cute because it was about an artist, the artist Pink. And I love Pink, right? And so this okay. this artist was a, this like band but I never heard anybody like play music like this so I got in touch with them and I said I wanted to see them play live and they're like yeah that's cool but we're in Norway so uh they're like they had tried they had attempted to do a tour in the U.S. but were you know kind of able to do a couple shows in California but it didn't really go anywhere so I said you know I'll give it a shot I want to I want to try to get you a tour if you'll come out I'll I'll put it together and they agreed to it. Uh, I guess we were both being wacky back then. It was sort of like, what do we have to lose here? Um, and I taught myself how to put together a tour. And we, we toured the, the, the country two summers in a row. So how did you take that and then become like the magic, you know, how you expanded from one Norwegian band to like managing area level, arena level tours for famous artists? Like what was the progression there? How'd you go well, from being 10 years, 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like overnight. I mean, it was, there was so much in between, so much in between. I, I, first of all, even though I was having a lot of fun, um, I took it very seriously, this indie, indie route. And so I, after that artist, which is golden boy, after we, we toured, I learned so much on those tours, even though it was just sort of this summer thing that we were doing. And then I, people heard about that I was doing that. So other indie artists reached out uh, and from Texas mostly and said, will you do that for my tour? And so I booked the tours and then I was the tour manager for those tours. And it was uh, just a lot of that grind and a lot of that uh, repetition, getting to know people, getting to know their needs. And then many years went by and I did, I published a music magazine uh, called Interlude. I started a blog. I uh, had m multiple jobs. Most of them um, uh, didn't work out as you, as you can imagine, because I'm here. And um, yeah. And then st starting at around 30, about 2010, what I want to, I want to go to a different level with this because I love being on the road. And I think I'm really good at this because I had met so many people. And uh, I said, I think I'm really good at this. I want to take this to a different level. But it really was like jumping across, you know, two buildings. I just watched the Bourne trilogy again. It was like watching, you know, jumping <laughs> two buildings with a standing start. It was just like, how do you go from there? And I just reached out to 100 production managers and tour managers and put put myself out there and, and, and uh, 
over a few weeks period, um, uh, got my first gig and then went on from there. And so you mentioned this was 2010, isn't that, is this the company you were looking at starting then? And cause isn't that when you started looking at doing yeah, you know, so venture it was investing like, it was as well? Like 2010 or 11 when I, when I really got into touring and I had been on the road and that's when I started like, see like understanding what startups were because of course i'd used i'd used startup products and i also like applied to airbnb and but i didn't know that that was a startup i didn't know what it was right so i applied yeah. to uh, be a customer service agent for 12 dollars to airbnb and i was not hired so i have a bone to pick with brian chesky we're gonna have a word about that one day <laughs> um but then i went on a few years later to hire one of his executives uh, after they left airbnb to work at backstage so i feel pretty good about that uh but yeah i was learning because i was on the road and i was seeing all these things and i was also a very curious person so when i was off the road i was researching and people like ashton kutcher and and uh ellen and and uh troy carter were making these investments in, in small companies called startups and i don't know it all kind of came together for me even though it probably was like right in front of me the whole time um but I, I was like, oh, these are startups and this is these are like people who put things together. And I've been doing that this whole time, but I didn't really have a structure for it or a name for it or, you know, it, it, a culture wasn't around me. I felt like I was by myself. And so discovering that was really um, exciting, you know, and then I went on to once I discovered it, I also saw, you know, some of the bad parts and some of the bad parts were that it wasn't as inclusive yeah. as I would have hoped it would be. As I would have imagined something so innovative and so inside the box could be, it was very much so uh, uh, homogenous and, and non-risk-taking and all sorts of things. And I was like, well, that that has to change because that's not good. That's not what startup, the startup uh, the world is. It's not the startup culture that I that I have bought into. So. Yeah. Can I pick that apart a bit? So in 2000, you know, you start learning about the startup scene. And, you know, I, I think one thing we've tried to do with Tech2O communities, make it um, accessible. Uh, and so it sounds like the whole space wasn't accessible back when you started and, and probably isn't today. So what were your big observations? Like, wh why was this, why do you believe the whole idea of a startup was new to you? And why do you believe it wasn't as diverse and inclusive as it should be back then? Um, well, it, I don't... I, I, I've done a lot of research and, and now studying, you know, so many thousands yeah. of companies and, and others to figure this out. But at the time, it just seemed like a few people had figured it out, you know, and kind of kept the secret closely held. And it's it, it's uh, across like proximity, too. So a lot of things were happening in Silicon Valley only. And like people were kind of reinforcing that idea that only good things could happen in tech in Silicon Valley as if Toronto or 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 Jackson, Mississippi had nothing else going for it. Right. Um, and so I think it was that it was like this sort of insulated club that people had figured out was a lot of fun and very lucrative. But if they told talk too much about they may lose some of that they thought, I think. And then also because of the way it was built, venture capital was built you know, around 75 years ago, give or take, it was built a, a very specific way by older white men who then kind of handed that off little by little to other people who reminded them of themselves and a very insulated, again, and, and, and close proximity place. And when the, when they got the, the reins, they would start investing in people who looked like them. 
And then it was just, you know, you talk about the PayPal mafia, mafia. Well, there, there was some diversity in like immigrants being in that, but for the most part, you're talking about all male, you're talking about all uh, white in, in, in the grand scheme of things. And they're billionaires and then they invest in what they want to invest in and they invest in more of the same because they want people in their image and men tend to have like a legacy um a thing about them they're driven by legacy which I, i am as well so i don't i don't think badly of it but when you are driven by legacy uh and you also have a lot of influence and power and money you want more of you walking around So you don't necessarily walk outside those lines and go looking for someone like me or someone like the many investments that I've made. So you've discovered what was going on. You started startups. You saw it wasn't that inclusive or diverse. And you started to tackle this head on. So very different than most people. So what were you thinking and how did you go about doing this? How did you go learning and break, you know, breaking into venture and learning venture. Yeah, I mean, th- that's why I wrote the book. Uh, it's about damn time because it was just so, I I was so heads down in it that I didn't think of it as something so wacky or out there. But, you know, now that I talk <laughs> about it so much, people are like, wait a minute, how did you do that? Well, I had no money. I had no real connections in Silicon Valley uh, at the time that I started thinking about this. So I set out to do a few things. One was to look at what I did have. What did I have? Well, I had a different point of view. I wasn't afraid to say it. I could find a way to articulate it, even though it wasn't polished at the time. I could find a way to to getting that across to people. I did have a even though I didn't have a network in Silicon Valley, I did have network because I had spent so much time um, working with people over the years and trying to build reputation and trying to do do good by others. And so I did have some pockets here and there of people I could, you know, bounce things off of. Um, I had a drive. I knew that the the company itself, the fund backstage should exist. So that was this drive that was the fuel for everything. Um, And then I also had a risk tolerance that I rarely find in other people still to this day, where I do feel like I have a lot to lose. It's not that I don't feel like I have something to lose. It's just that I'm willing to, I'm willing to look, look, silly i'm really willing to look wrong and to be wrong and to follow my face and to do so very publicly because i'm also um very committed and and convicted in 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 my views and and what i think is is the right thing to do Uh, i also really want to be wealthy and i have and i want to be wealthy so i can share that wealth and so i can uh have autonomy and and do the things and have a high quality of life so all of those things combined I just said, well, let me go out, do as much research as I can, learn as much as I can, be, um, kind of create, create this sort of uh, world for myself and, and opportunity for myself. And then I set out and, and did that. And just, it was just this ability to talk to so many people and hear a negative reaction and be able to just keep going from that. And tell me about that journey, because I, I, from what I understand, like, I don't think anyone's handing out checks to you when you started the idea of backstage capital. So what were the struggles you had to get through? And then what, what was a pivotal moment where things turned around a bit and you, you, you know, 
started started getting a bit of uh, I guess let's say yeah um, success. Uh, so for the first few years, no one no one invested in backstage. You know, I had people who were kind to me and people who would listen to me, but for the most part, it was people who didn't think that this was a viable idea. And certainly, even if they may have thought maybe I'm right about it, they didn't think that I was the one to do it because I just was coming out of left field to them. You know, uh, so it was it was all it was this sort of convincing people. Unfortunately, having to convince people, yes, black people create companies that are viable. Yes, women are creating companies at record numbers, of course, and they're viable. And it's not a, it's not a uh, philanthropic effort to back them. It's not out of the goodness of your heart necessarily. Th those types of things, when you are that person, when I'm a gay black woman, having to explain not only myself but the people who are, who have raised me, it can be uh, dehumanizing at some points, you know. So that was tough, but I kept going with it because I knew I was right. And uh, and then it was just like practical stuff. I ran out of capital. I ran out of. I didn't really have any to begin with, but I just ran out of options. The older I got, the more favors I you know called in, the fewer I had. And so I, I found myself with a lot of housing insecurity and that's been that's been promoted plenty. And it, it's true. In fact, yeah. some people um, question if if I'm embellishing about that. And I, my answer to that is actually I'm not telling you all of the, the extent of it. It was actually worse than what has been reported. So that was going on. And then 2015, I met a woman named Susan Kimberlin. And I've probably said her name a thousand times at this point, because even though she, you know, her amount was 25,000 to, to help me invest in somebody else. And then another 25,000 to invest in me, the startup. And even though I've gone on to raise um, more than $12 million and generate millions of dollars in revenue, I will always remember. And um, that I will always remember her for that, that moment and always treasure that. Uh, so I encourage people to be someone's first yes when it comes to things because there's no dollar amount on it. You know, if Susan had, she, I'll tell her this now, but if she had given me $5,000, I would have said, I would have said, okay, she believes in me. I'm going to go. And, and um, that was just something very special to, to kickstart what we were doing. And then she kickstarted it. And since then you've been actively investing, um, I've read that you have over a hundred portfolio companies. Yes, I have. Um, well, we've uh, we've invested in like another dozen or so during COVID, so it's probably at one hundred and forty ish at this point companies, and that's probably three hundred founders. What advice do you have for founders seeking capital, especially ones that where it doesn't seem actively as easily available for? What what's your what what are the lessons you have? Uh, you know, I, I think I hear lots of hard work and lots of hustle, but, and mm -hmm. you've now invested in 140 companies. Is there any takeaways or lessons that um, people should have? Well, honestly, and I say this quite often, and I really mean it, focusing on the company itself, um, building up your company, build, doing the most that you can with what you have is probably the most important piece of advice I can give you and the most important thing you can do. 
I see so many founders who will take like six to 12 months off of like really building what could be a great company so they can go and convince somebody else to invest money into them based on what they did those six months ago. And when you ask them, well, what's your traction like or how is the product developed? And they'll, they'll say, well, it's been stalled because I can't find any money excuse because I've been there and I was in fact my product was capital so you can't convince me that you can't find something it, ha it has to be more than your ability to raise it has to be your ability to attract other people to do things with you to find in-kind ways there has to do with your ability to, to figure out ways to there's always a way to make the amount of money you believe you need less there's always a way to work around. And so wow. that ability to do that is so interesting to me. You're going to then uh, paradoxically attract money by, by not, by the more that you don't need it, you're going to attract more of it. So I would just focus on that because everybody has that power within them. Everybody can do something today to, to make them a little bit more uh, self-reliant and, and, and uh, yeah, that's where I would start with it. And, and my book talks a lot more about that. I, I love that answer. That's very inspiring. And I, I wish every founder could hear that. I'm um, going to ask, I know we're coming up on time, but I have two quick um, quick questions I want to take from the audience. Uh, Bobby Rosette uh, asked, do you have any Canadian startups in your portfolio? Canadian startups. Um, I don't believe we have any Canadian yeah. startups that actively live in Canada right now. I did last year uh, go to Canada a couple of, different times in Toronto as well. I mean, you know, in Toronto and uh, definitely saw some amazing things that uh, were very, very interested in. So we actually just started investing in, in England, which turned out to be five African companies or African led companies, either first or second generation uh, just last year. So we're making our rounds. Okay. And, you know, just I'll quick follow up on there. If someone wants to reach out to, you know, uh, about financing how, how does what's go the best backstage, way to go get, backstagecapital.com slash apply we are one of the few funds and one of the earliest funds to make an open application process available to you okay. uh i'm going to take one last question from our audience i think it's melena ray i hope i'm pronouncing that right um here's my question what innovate what innovations inspire Arlen to keep going and dream bigger I'm going to say something real corny. Uh, the innovation of you, <laughs> the fact that we can, like I said earlier, we have so much power innately in us that really um, inspires me. Like I, I can point to an app or to a product or something like that, or even to a person and say that that, that invention inspires me, but it really is our power to innovate and iterate on ourselves so that no matter what our current circumstance is, we can always make it better or we can always change it in some way. And I'm living proof of it. And I've seen it happen over and over again when people stop uh, like looking outward for things and, and really look inward for what can I control? What talent do I already have? What is it within me? To me, the, the, the startup of you is really powerful to me. I love that because what I'm hearing is a idea of basically tenacity and investing in yourself. Yeah. I'm just, if you have time for one more question, I saw a great sure, one. Sure, let's um, do one more. I, I am back-to-back. Uh, -back, okay. Uh, it was basically, is there any you know legal or systematic change that would help, uh, if you could wave your wand and change something about the system, that would help encourage more diversity? Yes. 
Uh, well, there's two. One is that LPs be uh, LPs to the limited partners who invest the institutions and high net worth individuals who invest in the funds that then go out and invest in others, that there were a law or some sort of mandate that they had to put X amount of funding towards um, um, more seeing more diverse deal flow. And one of the reasons is somebody, you know, we've been talking about this a lot for years, but what somebody recently brought it back up is that a lot of the money that goes into venture capital into those funds comes from people's pensions. So you have people who are like working people from all diverse backgrounds who are actually paying into that money and then it gets whitewashed, if you will. Um, and it turns into, oh, it only goes to these certain people on this certain time and that is not okay. And so I, I think something has to break there. We've been trying to do something there for four years, at least, you know, actively. Something has to break there. The other thing is changing. I don't know what it is in Canada, actually, but in the U.S., um, changing the laws and the and the stipulations around accredited investors. Again, it's something that a lot of us talk about and a lot of us are trying to change. And I think there is something out there that is going to change pretty quickly but the fact that you can, if you make under 200000 maybe you work at a tech company, you're a product manager or something like that, and you you could today go to Vegas and, and waste $2,000 uh, within 20 minutes. You know, I've seen it happen. People can do that, but you're not allowed to invest $2,000 into accredited-only deals. Now, I have BackstageCrowd.com, which, which is our syndicate. Um, which allows for accredited and non-accredited different deals, but th there's no reason there should be that distinction in my opinion, you know? And, and so those things can really uh, change everything in the la in the next 10 years. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And our laws are basically the same. It's like 200,000 US dollars income. You have to have 200,000 200, yep. Canadian to be accredited. It's very silly. silly law. Arlen, thank you so much for your time. This was thank very you. insightful. I encourage anyone that wants to learn more about you to go buy the book. Yes, it's indeed. about damn time. And, you know, I, I hope we, next time we talk that you have a couple of investments. I would up love in, to. Uh, yeah. We're, we're making our rounds, you know, uh, <laughs> we're making our rounds, but you have some great stuff I've seen up there. Incredible.